0: They shouldn't be in the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done done dusted. We win the game. Officials cost us two points today. It's standard.
1: Ten past ten. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable.
2: And hasn't he the funniest shape? He's <laughs> a
0: little chunky fella. They'll fight it from the tree. It's a joke. we gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly, they need help. Clearly, we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke.
3: Hi, all, and welcome to another edition of the Tree at the Back podcast in a world where football is fault. We power on, albeit somewhat sporadically, with myself and Phil Green. How are you, Phil? Hey, Kev. How are things? How are you keeping? Um, Not too bad now. Leagues decide whether or not to put a cork in their 2019 2020 seasons. We're going to chat to Michael Bell of footballorange.com about the Eredivisie's decision to put a strike through their entire season with no promotion, relegation or title decided, something that's caused major controversy in the Netherlands with a number of positions still at stake, not to mention the title race, where at the time of postponement, both Ajax and AZ Alkmaar were level on points at the top of the table. A little later on, we're going to be chatting to Robbie Dunne, um, Irish journalist based in Madrid, about the sad passing of former Ireland and Liverpool player Michael Robinson who, beknownst to a lot of people in Ireland and the UK, went on to be one of Spain's most loved and respected football commentators after he retired after a brief stint at Osasuna in the late 80s. So we'll be finding out a little bit more about the impact um, Michael made on Spanish life and football a little later on with Robbie. Um, but first, Phil, I suppose, how is locked life in lockdown treating you?
0: Um, yeah, not too bad, thanks, Kev. i um... I've been getting stuck into every behind-the-scenes, fly-on-the-wall documentary Netflix has to offer, so I've been through season two of Sunderland Till I Die, and I, I hammered through the Leeds United one on Amazon Prime as well. Um, Off-topic for this podcast, but I've been enjoying The Last Dance um, on Netflix from ESPN, uh, and I'm in a market for anything anyone else can point me in the direction of, because mm. that's only going to last so long.
3: <laughs> um, I, I watched um, Sunderland Till I Die as well, and I'd be interested to hear what you make of it. Um I didn't think it was as good as season 1 and I just kind of felt like they had so much material to work with that they didn't really kind of make the most of it you know with uh the uh, the whole losing in the playoff final and stuff
0: Yeah I I, I agree like um while well, I really enjoyed the kind of bumbling incompetencies of the executives which kind of nearly feels a little too on the nose now it kind of feels performative almost and that your man's blasting out a beat the house music in, into the stadium light. I agree <laughs> with you. There, there, there was a, there was a lot there in in that playoff defeat, the playoff final, the way it went, and how quickly they finished up on it. Um, in general, I thought I thought it was quite good. You are probably getting into the rhythm now. Like the first season was kind of, it was the first one of the of its kind that had kind you know that come along in a while to get under the skin of mm-hmm. a football club in that way, I suppose. And it's not like. Like the, the I don't know if you saw the Sergio Ramos film uh, or or series, but that's very much like Sergio Ramos's direction of Sergio Ramos, whereas um, season one of Sunderland's Little I just felt like really proper fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. I suppose we're kind of getting a bit used to that now, and so when things actually looked like they were relatively successful for a while, maybe that was less enjoyable um, because they actually had a, a pretty successful regular season. Um and secretly I think a lot of the reason that we enjoy this is is the misery um, but I think I hit like the usual time like the deadline day episode is always good that always delivers a nice little added wrinkle of, of Stuart Dallas coming in as well um, it, it, I thought it was a good watch I didn't enjoy it as much season one and I don't know if you've seen the Leeds one but I, actually, I thought the Leeds one was better as well
3: I haven't actually seen the Leeds one um, I must get to that um, but yeah you're, I think you're spot on I think because the original intention of the show, I think, was to follow a fairly successful season in season one, and it just went to utter shit. And I think that's what made it so good, um, and it, it kind of struck gold in that matter because it was just so bad that it made it, it turned it into into good TV. Um, and I think then I felt in season two there was less access to the players and stuff, who we were probably a little bit, you know, kind of standoffish after kind of how poorly a lot of it was portrayed um, in season one. Um, but the, the transfer deadline day, the, I mean, the whole kind of the way they'd set it up with Donald kind of, you know, penciling through so many budgets and looking to cut costs here and there. And, you know, they were looking at the cryo chamber and, you know, any, anything that wasn't, that co- that was expendable, they were, uh, cutting costs to just kind of double their bid, or did they triple it in the end for Will Greig. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I, I kind of cheated in when I was watching it. I looked up his stats um, retrospectively now ever, since the episode, and I think he's like five goals for Sunderland. So it's just an utter shambles the way it was all done. Yeah, yeah.
0: and like that—that that is kind of like the jeopardy is why we're interested in this. I mean, there's a certain appeal. To like cities, Amazon Prime dock where they they swept all before them, but really what you're looking for is that kind of moment of jeopardy, um, when when somebody falls short of that thing that they're looking to achieve. But I think that's probably the the magic of like sports docs is um, mm. these people who are putting an awful lot on the line to get close to something and, and kind of fall flat. And it, that's why I think ultimately something like that is a good concept for as long as they kind of keep being a little slapstick. And that's why it worked really well for Leeds mm. as well. Um, because obviously they had such an up-and-down season that ultimately ended in this crushing disappointment. Um, I think you you do need that for the absolute best of it to come out, because I think the appeal of um, just watching a team cruise would wear a little tin.
3: Definitely, because I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, in in the NFL, every off-season, they... um, to it's not all or nothing it's um i forget what it's actually called now they, they just kind of follow a team um through kind of off-season training and that and it's usually uh the team that is they select kind of has to have a certain criteria so it can't be um say the current super bowl winner or it can't be a team that's been in the playoff in the last x amount of years so it's usually kind of a, a team down on their luck and they've usually been, had a couple of years of misfortune. And I think that's what makes it better. You're kind of, you're rooting, not, not necessarily rooting, but you're kind of following a team that is more interesting from an outsider perspective rather than, I don't know, watching Manchester City or the New England Patriots or someone who's so used to success. And it kind of yeah. it's a well-oiled machine at this stage where um, they're probably better off not getting any cameras in. Um, and I suppose... We did have the the Spurs show kind of coming up. They kind of probably struck a chord in the middle where they're a pretty good team and they've a lot going for them. But some of the decision making, I suppose, with Pochettino and um, and Daniel Levy and Jose Mourinho, kind of adds an interesting facet to that. Whenever that comes out,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it, they picked the right season to to follow the team. Um, mm. I mean, like it, it would have been interesting, I suppose, to follow them. Um, like in their on their ascent over the last couple of years, but I mean, it's probably the most interesting Spurs have been in, in that time. You know, like possibly it's in, in, into quite a good team. But the better a team becomes until they kind of ascend to that next level, it's slightly less interesting. There, I mean, it'll be fine watching the documentary about a team that you know comes between second and fourth every year. But there needs to be a little bit of something extra, and this season definitely would have that for Spurs. Um,
3: brings us on, I suppose, to one team that probably, if there was a camera crew, finding them around for the last, I don't know, five or six or or more years did make a a pretty interesting programme is uh, Newcastle. And the whole thing about this Saudi takeover, um, I mean, kind of football's ethics is starting to come true at the moment where where it didn't in in previous examples of of certain takeovers where you could kind of point to and question the... um, uh, how ethical the the ownership um, is in in a business sense, or indeed in a kind of a, a government sense. In this case, um, it does look like it will happen. I mean, there was a little bit of a blowback in the media and on with fans on social media and stuff um, when it kind of initially came out with Saudi Arabia. Um, how do you where do you stand on that? I mean we've let Manchester City in at this point with Abu Dhabi Um, I remember Dubai um, were kind of in the conversation for Liverpool before Higgs and Gillette came on board there's been a couple of examples now in football it does look like it's going to happen and it probably will benefit um, Newcastle to a huge extent I mean it's not Mike Ashley Uh, there's there's your first bonus Um, and I think a lot of fans um, will probably look to that and won't really care uh, what the Saudi Arabians are doing on their own doorstep. Once um, they look after um, St James's Park, um, it's it's a bit of a it's a kind of a conundrum, isn't it? It's going to happen, but should it happen?
0: It's a really tricky one. I think you're absolutely right, and like I I can completely understand why Newcastle fans are delighted that Mike gosh is selling the club because of how he's handled things for, for the last ten years. And I can understand why not everyone is ripping up their season ticket and saying I'm never never going to set foot in James Park as long as as, as say he was on the club. But I do think that it's almost uh, incumbent upon fans of football clubs to hold their owners to a certain standard. Um, I think too often now, and you mentioned City, it's kind of happened there, it uh, happens with Liverpool fans, I don't see it as much with United fans, but you know maybe I'm not plugged into it. There's not a lot of defending of club's owners as if they were like a player or a manager. Um, and not just like the custodians of this thing that the fans actually hold dear to their hearts than the, than the club owners. They, club owners have now become tribal in a way that like players and managers used to be. So um, City fans will, will defend uh, Abu Dhabi and... Liverpool fans will defend FSG's decision on the furlough. For you know, to take a kind of less serious example, um, but I don't think that's right. I don't think football fans should or should have to defend the owners of their clubs. These multi-multi billionaires with boundless pits of money aren't the people that represent their club. They're the people that own it. I think you can hold them to a standard and, and oppose them while still following the club. I can understand how it's a messy thing for people to extract themselves from. If it was me, I'd have tr- I'd have trouble following yeah. Liverpool as wholeheartedly as I do now. If a regime like that took over the club, because it's what they're using it for, they're using it to you know this term sports watching to, to to improve their international image. It's a form of soft power, and Saudi Arabia has loads of hard power as well, and that's kind of the the problem. A lot in all of this is how they use it. Um, And, like, there's lots of water battery in these situations. So, like, um, I know, obviously, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury fought in Saudi Arabia.
2: Um,
0: The WWE... Or, sorry, it was Deontay... Sorry, Deontay Wilder and Fury, was it? Wilder Fury, yeah. Yeah, was in in Saudi Arabia. Um, And the WWE, the wrestling, have a big deal. That always comes up. People are... There's an awful lot of water battery in this situation. I... I don't think that applies. I think you just have to take each situation on its merits. All of them are <laughs> equally wrong. It doesn't make yours any less wrong because other people are doing it. The British government mm. have uh, arms deals with Saudi Arabia. That doesn't make it right. And if people are leaning on Boris and the Tory party as a crutch for why Newcastle should be led to do it, I'm not entirely sure. And um, It's messy. In football terms, it's definitely going to benefit Newcastle. And The interesting detail here, I suppose, is when... Abu Dhabi took over City, there was no FFP, now there is. So yeah. there's going to be a cap on what they can do. And I, I do believe there's all sorts of kind of complicated structures being put into this deal. And that's why it was kind of been off and on again, in that there's going to be a couple of different parties holding different parts of Newcastle. So while the main shareholder is going to be the Saudi investment fund, there's going to be a couple of, a couple of um, hedge fund brothers involved, and Mandy is involved as well. There's going to be a couple of people in a kind of consortium, so the, we mightn't actually see Saudi Arabia's fingerprints across Newcastle too much. Though, as you said, I mightn't be—I wouldn't be overly surprised if Amazon or Netflix end up rocking up St. James's Park, and um, in line with this sports watching effort.
3: Yeah, and I mean, Manchester City is the immediate comparison um, to this thing, and from the fans' perspective. Um, specifically the Newcastle fans. I mean, you're kind of so sick of seeing Mike Ashley over the years and, uh, you know, his face and everything. Whereas, um, I don't think the city owner, Sheik Mansoor, I don't think he's been at a game in years. I mean, he was at one of the first games before he or after he took over. Um, yeah. And it's kind of a case of, you know, nothing seen, nothing heard um, from their perspective. And I'm sure it's quite easy for a lot of Man City fans to kind of defend the ownership in that case when they're not looking at him um, up in the stands every week. It's very much a kind of, uh, it's been uh, delegated down a number of ranks um, into into a kind of a football-facing um, directorship, really. And I'm sure something similar will be put in place with Newcastle. And it kind of washes their hands a little bit because, you know, the Saudi uh, relationship will be a little bit distant in, in that case. Um, but like you said it, it, it is it is dirty it, it doesn't feel right um, and it kind of you know it, it it muddies the sport a little bit especially like when you look at uh, and it's something we've called before you know teams down the ranks in the lower leagues that are struggling for pennies um, to see an actual nation come along um, and purchase a football club just because they can and there's nothing there to stand in their way it, it, it kind of it definitely dirties it Um I suppose to focus on a, on a footballing sense uh, on this story, the rumours last couple of days that Mauricio um, Pochettino is going to be their number one target um, for manager. I mean, that would be a, uh, whatever about their uh, their ethics off the field, that would be a, f- a fair statement um, when you walk in the, in the door.
0: Yeah, it would be, be phenomenal. I mean, y- you look around available and a lot of unavailable managers, and there's not many better. I mean, like you're you're probably looking at the, the, the teams teams are first and second in the Premier League as an upgrade on him, really. Um, and like you you get the sense the type of character that he is that he'd fit in quite well in a city like Newcastle and um, football mad single team city, and um, like just absolutely will give their all for a team that's competitive, <laughs> and he would make them competitive in a way. I think Newcastle would probably rel- relish. So like obviously Kevin Keegan, is their most revered manager of our lifetime, probably a couple of people's lifetimes, and he had this kind of swashbuckling kind of devil may care attitude. Potts won't be that, but he'll be very much the kind of up and Adam aggressive knife in the teeth sort of team. Um, if he does get the job, it it would be a serious statement of intent, um and it would allow them to stake their claim while limited by FFP. They could stake their claim for a certain caliber of player that they couldn't get. If they appointed even like a Patrick Vieira, just to plug a name has been linked before, or you know, a, a lesser level of coach. If Potts went there, it would really kind of put them on the map as a new project,
3: yeah. I mean, and he's you'd imagine he's the type of manager that would have his fingers in kind of the overall structure of the club as well, um, yeah, or like he'd have he'd have say in what the under 23s were doing, what the academy is doing, um, and like. It, well, it kind of happened before Pep uh, came along at City, but they kind of had everything in place for his arrival. You'd imagine yeah. Pep or, or or Pochettino would be the one kind of driving the the development of the club as a whole, not just from uh, the senior squad standpoint.
0: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I, I think the idea of being given an awful lot of, Sway and that would probably appeal to Potch as well because mm. I know that he was like he initially was very, very close to Daniel Levy, but eventually that kind of relationship frayed a little bit. So, if because of Levy's control in terms of budgets and transfers, and so if Potch feels that he has a level of control, uh, I, I'd imagine it would appeal to him a great deal. Yeah, and um, we're
3: going to be chatting to Michael Bell shortly. Um, about the Air Division. Um and this week as well, there was the the, the French leagues have um put a stop to their leagues. Um, but I think they're they're still going ahead with kind of a relegation promotion, you know, champions and all that. Um, just finishing it up early. There's a couple of leagues starting to drop um, and those two were definitely the biggest so far. And when all this started I was kinda I was definitely one hundred to 95% sure that the Premier League would eventually finish. And that's kind of probably dropped now to 80 to 85%. It's slowly dwindling away <laughs> as, as the weeks go on um, and matters get worse and worse that, that we'll never see. Um, and then and a finish of the season, and, and we'll probably have an asterisk uh, next to our title winning season forevermore. What's your confidence level at the moment that, uh, that the Premier League will return, um, I suppose, before? august september
0: yeah i I completely agree like even as early or sorry as late as as last week i was probably entirely comfortable with the idea that the premier league was going to come back especially when the bundesliga announced the 9th of may as their day i was like that is absolute concrete proof this is going to happen and then the, the the dutch league went and you know that wasn't great and i wasn't delighted about it um but I was like, you know what, it's, it's probably all right. And then the French league went, and I started to get a bit panicky. And um, you know, it's, it's the first time I thought this actually mightn't go. And um, like like you said, it's before August September, it'll. I think it'll definitely. If it's going to come back, it'll be back by then. I think it'll be back <clears throat> by the, by the middle of June if it's going to be back. Um, and if it's not, then I don't think it will be. Um, because I think the later it gets the more persuasive the argument becomes mm. to stop the season and not void it. I don't think, like, I'm, voiding isn't going to happen. Um, I think that can be forgotten about. But and as I think, so the kind of Dutch idea of not appointing a champion, I think that can be forgotten about as well. Um, Though, you know, I suppose you can't rely on know, but I'm pretty yeah. sure at a worst-case scenario, there's going to be some sort of sporting merit, as UEFA called it, method of <clears throat> doling out points points per game or whatever you w- whatever way you want to do it and Liverpool will be noted as champions whatever that's going to be worth um, like you said that's going to carry an asterisk and every United and City fan will be very happy to remind every Liverpool fan of that <laughs> for a while um, but I think if it's, I think there's a meeting later this week or early next week and I think if a decision isn't, start, if there isn't the start of a decision on that very soon then we're probably struggling to see it come back, but a lot can change in a couple of days, even. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we're probably
3: at a stage now. And I, I think um, Miguel Delaney had a poll up today to kind of gauge where people felt that, uh, about um, football coming back in June and uh, behind closed doors, and um, it was overwhelmingly in favour. But I suppose it's it's who you ask really like a, a lot of hardcore football fans would be delighted to get back but you'd imagine the huge majority of the population in the UK would have that so far down the picking order um, that, it, that it, it, it's, it's completely and utterly irre- irrelevant um, but I'm, I'm probably on the viewpoint at the moment that we'll likely see some form of a behind closed doors precaution, precautions everywhere Live streamed on television, it 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 won't feel the same, Um, but I think that's the kind of route we're going down, and it'll probably rerun off over a couple of weeks, uh, like with two or three matches a week for every team. Um, Which again, you know, you kind of question if to do to go down that route, how how teams are going to prepare, um, where are they going to stay? I mean, you're basically asking teams to. Probably move away from your families for a couple of weeks to mm-hmm. to to, to kind of be away from the, the general public and, and live like a, a hermit in between games. I mean, it's, it's again, we're kind of coming back to the ethics of football. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I mean, it would be a nice um, bit of entertainment, for live sport on television, um, but is it worth potentially? Um, no Find our word in a life or death kind of situation, like if you mm. go ahead and if something went wrong, like if it got out or if there was a, another blowback from the virus. Um, but that's that's kind of where I'm thinking at the moment. I think, above all else, I think just the Premier League is too big and it's too rich to fall at this stage. I think there will eventually, um, especially if numbers start to ease, um. Towards the end of May, I think you'll probably look at July or, or June or July. Some form of football uh, back in our screens. That's that's what I think. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, if more leagues start to start to to put a cork in it, you, you never know. The Premier League might be under pressure then to, to say, you know, that's it. We'll we'll call it off.
0: The only thing I will say is that I know in the decision for a Fre- French sport to be paused was made by the government and all indications suggest that that surprised the LFB that they actually weren't expecting that announcement that they were working on their own plans to return in the Premier League's case they've very much been in contact with uh, the Culture Secretary in the government it's very much kind of collaborative there so there won't be any surprises uh, in, to that end and so I think that probably works in favour of a return no, not saying it will happen but it probably works in favour of it just that everyone's on the same page and working. They have been very open about working towards a return to football, whereas the French decision was actually made at a government level, blanketed across all sports, and it was something that brought a degree of surprise <coughs> to the French leagues. So that might work in favour of the Premier League, I and mean, it probably is horses for courses uh, a little bit in that, like obviously Germany, are, like they're going to be three weeks ahead of the next league to come back at the earliest. Um, and then you're looking at somebody like Collins or or Netherlands have already pulled the plug so for every league that goes there's probably going to be a league that carries on and you kind of have to I, I presume the Premier League are going to take the path that they think best and see how it works out there's going to be an element of building the plane as you fly it if you go ahead and there is always going to be an element of what if if they pull it
2: Who wrote mm-hmm. I tell you, it. I can remember his name, Rod Little. He's the guy who ran away and left his wife for a younger.
1: And depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket, you have eggs class one, class two, class three, and some are more expensive than others, and some give you better omelets. So when when the class one eggs. Are in Waitrose and you cannot go
0: there? Real Madrid is not Barcelona. It's a office small team. They have many problems. I want my players play with balls. Say a and a bomb in the street and a gun and a
3: we have Michael Bell of the fantastic English home for all things Dutch football com on the podcast to talk about the goings-on in the Eredivisie. Thanks for hopping on the podcast tonight, Mike.
1: Um, first of all, I, I hope you're keeping well during these times. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, strange times, no football, but just doing what we can to, to keep going and, you know, there's still a lot of football news out there, so there's still a lot to talk about.
3: As opposed to the Ears Divisie kind of came out of nowhere this week uh, with their story. Um, I mean, leagues all over the world are trying to figure out a way to, to work football during these times. Um, and the KNVB kind of went and completely pulled the rug under the Dutch League seasons, basically voiding the uh, 2019-2020 season um, in a move that, I suppose, it's sure to perk the ears of United and City fans and anyone keen to see the smile wiped off Liverpool faces. Um Michael, I suppose, to begin, can you paint a picture of where the Air Division was at at the time everything ground to a halt in terms of the title
1: race? Yeah, so um, it was actually panning out to be one of the most exciting title races in a while. You know, you had Ajax, who obviously went on that wonderful Champions League run last year, but have lost a couple of key players in the summer. Um, they're again taken right to the end by AZ Alkmaar, who you were know, level on points going into when it did go into lockdown, and then you know AZ had beaten them twice this season, home and away, so they were looking like real challengers. And Ajax were having some troubled times, and yeah, it was panning out to be one of the most exciting ends to, uh, to the tie race in a while. But it's just a shame that we won't get to see the, the end of that now because it's all done. So, did this? I suppose I know, like kind of we're
3: coming from a probably a Premier League perspective, where everything is still up in the air and. We don't really know what's going to happen. Like, will it be football back in, in some form or another? Did this news kind of blindside the clubs or has it been in the goings for the last couple of weeks that that the league could potentially uh, be called off?
1: Yeah, it's been rumbling on for a couple of weeks now. And um, basically, the KNVB always had the idea that it was going to finish. And they're talking about, you know, we'll get back on in June. Right? Teams would be back in training by May. To finish the season in June but then basically the mayors of all the cities came out and said there's no chance of that happening and one from Eindhoven was very vocal in saying that you'd have no football in his city um, because not only if it was behind closed doors you'd still have fans gathering in the streets or outside the stadium, he was worried about that, he said there's no chance of that happening and then last week the Prime Minister Mark Rutte basically just came out and said no sporting events until September and that was it so it wasn't really the KNVB's decision; it was more the government that stopped it.
3: Um, myself and Phil were chatting earlier about um, the French league, which has also um, put a halt uh, to the proceedings there. Why did the Dutch decide to kind of call off relegation, promotion, championship, and not kind of finish the season as is?
1: Yeah. So um, one of the things that's still ongoing, there's got to be lawsuits and all these clubs that are unhappy, especially the ones that were on course for promotion, is basically that the KNVB basically asked clubs to vote on whether they still have promotion, still have relegation Um, 16 came out in favour of it, Um, 9 abstained, didn't vote and 9 said no Um, probably 2 of them being the ones that were going to go down, Um, but then they just decided that that wasn't no, um clear enough, so they decided to do it themselves and they basically postponed relegation. Um Ajax are furious because they've obviously not been handed the title. Um Is out? Alkmaar unhappy because they think that they should have rights to that um basically the domain Champions League place that would go straight into the group stages because they've basically taken it on goal difference instead of saying, Look, you've got better head to head than Ajax so they are unhappy you've got Utrecht who are unhappy because they had a game in hand on Willem and they were in the cup final so they think they should be in Europe whereas they've given it to Willem Twee, who are in the fifth standard now so KVB have made the decision basically made other and HAG who are managed by Alan Pardew and Arkes they like very happy by keeping them up but it's definitely not the end of the story because there's a lot of clubs that aren't happy um, Kambour and the grasscap who are going to come up are threatening legal action as well as you direct as well. So it's definitely not a story that's done and settled, it's going to rumble on for, for weeks to come, I think.
3: Definitely um, sounds like a messy situation. And you mentioned Alan Pardew there, and he was in the news this week. Um, to be honest, I wasn't even aware that he was managing in, in the Air Divisie. Uh, where did he come into it? Um, it looks like he, he, he played or he managed one game?
1: Um, eight games. Oh, eight Um, games, sorry. Yeah, yeah. he took over in January. Um, Basically, the club was in a bad situation. Um, He took over in January, brought in a lot of lone players from England from League One championship level. And it didn't really go well. He won one game out of eight, and the club were heading down. There was even a little protest by fans who weren't happy with the way that he was picking the team. He He basically left out quite a lot of their experienced players for these, you know, English oneese who didn't really look up to the standard. Mm-hmm. Um the club was heading down. There was no way he was going to save them. And then they've been saved by the K M V B. I think the not a surprise at all that Adam Hag came out yesterday and said, Look, we're not going to renew his contract. He's leaving he's leaving now. Um yeah, it was just a very poor appointment. Um, he actually made them play worse than what they were before. So yeah, i do no um no fans of the Premier League would be surprised with that. Me being a Newcastle fan myself, I'm not surprised they didn't do well, but yeah, cool. yeah, it was just a disastrous appointment. Adder and Hag are just lucky that they got saved.
3: I feel like Pardew is probably the type of guy to add to uh, keep, uh, keeping um, Adder and hag up on his CV um, after all <laughs> this.
1: <laughs> he probably will, yeah, he probably will. Um, <laughs> There's obviously news came out saying um, some of the English newspaper said he was going to get a, a hundred grand bonus um, for keeping them up. Cheaper. Um, he came out and said that that was nonsense, and if he even got a bonus, he'd give it to charity. But mm. you know, I don't think a lot of people would have been surprised if he did get a hundred grand bonus and keep it himself. To be honest, Michael, has has there been any reason put forward from uh, from Dutch
0: FA or f- from the league as to why the the European places were handed out on the standings as they are, as opposed to the sort of solutions that are being mooted for France and if the Premier League does get called off, point points per game ratio and that sort of stuff. um, Do you think that the the, the pause in the league and finishing as it is qualifies under UEFA's sporting merit uh, criteria for handing out European competition? It seems a little unfair to pause the league in an unfinished or uneven state where some teams have played different fixtures than others.
1: Yeah, um, so this is what the big problem is. The KMV haven't really came out and explained themselves and this is why Utrecht are so unhappy and are threatening legal action as well because obviously they had a game in hand and were in the cup final and it's even worse now because the KNBB sent out a letter saying that they're not even sure whether they'll now get that fifth European spot because UEFA might decide that because it's not going to a team that's won the cup that they're no longer allowed it so basically said in a letter today, we're not even sure whether Villem Tway will even get it. So, it could come to the stage that Netherlands only gets four European spots next season instead of five and that Feyenoord, if it did happen, Feyenoord would lose their place and automatically in the competition, they'd have to qualify as well. So, until UEFA actually decides if what the KNVB are proposing is okay, um, it's all up in the air even more so. And... Is it Alkmaar's second Champions League spot is only guaranteed if the winner of this year's competition <coughs> qualified for the league? Um, so there's still all that to be decided as well. So it's it's really a messy situation, and it's still going to be weeks and weeks until it's actually decided what is going on with it. Is there any indication? Um, I know
0: we've we've heard and seen reports and the loss of revenue the Premier League could be facing from uh, sponsors and broadcast partners if they don't finish out the league is there any indication how big of a
1: hit that this is going to be for the Air yep yeah so the KNVB have already said that they're going to ask for some government money because um, they're facing maybe 300 million euros worth of losses and they're going to get, try and get some help from them yeah but clubs you know there's a lot of clubs in the Netherlands that are struggling financially as it is while uh, finishing the season now so there's a lot of um you know, funds being set up by the KMVB and um, all the Dutch internationals from under-21s to, to the big side, to the women's side, all donated to a, a fund for, for struggling clubs as well. There might be one or two that may eventually go, go bust but there's so much stuff that is being put on hold now because of this, you know, transfer fees are going to get put down and Fine are thinking of building a huge new stadium but that's now 50-50 because you might not have the funds so I think that one thing that will affect is, is transfer fees. You think that some of Ajax's top talents and PSV's top players, you know, if they were going to go for maybe 40, 50 million, that was getting rumoured earlier in the season now that those prices are going to get slashed in half. Um, Onana, the Ajax goalkeeper, he was getting linked with 40, 50 million moves, and now it's said that Ajax would accept closer to, to 30 million. So that's, you know, clubs are going to be missing out on a lot of money through transfers as well.
3: I suppose, um, from a kind of a, a fan standpoint, has, has there been much of a reaction to, to their decision to, to call it off at this point?
1: Not too much from some fans. You know, Ajax fans are unhappy that they're not getting called champions, but AZ fans are unhappy that they don't get the chance to challenge it. There hasn't been like massive protests or anything like this. They seem to all be accepting of the fact that, you know, health comes first in the season. Now finishing isn't, you know, top priority at the moment. But I think everyone's just a bit disappointed that we're not going to see what could have been an excellent title race get played out. And even you know Feyenoord, who since Dick Advocat took over in, in January were unbeaten and they were even threatening to become, you know, a third team in the title race. So I think there's just a lot of disappointment that what could have been really exciting has just been drawn to a halt. Um, but yeah, there's nothing that really could have been done about it. I don't think.
3: Um, Phil mentioned Ajax uh, a little bit earlier, um, and they've kind of been the top team, I suppose, in in European terms um, over the past couple of years, and they had that fantastic Champions League run. Um, They've kind of been picked apart a little bit. Um, Frankie de Jong went to Barcelona this year. He, He seems to be doing pretty well. Delish um, went to Juventus. He seems to be settling in nicely there. Is, is there any kind of other names that are, are, are going to be uh, picked apart um, from that squad uh, as it stands? Because I think they kind of managed to hold on to most of the squad that, that had the Champions League run.
1: Yeah, and they managed to, except for the, you know De and, Um Frankie, managed to keep hold of it mostly. You know, Lassa Shona was a bit part, but he went to, to Genoa. Um, this summer, I think you're going to lose maybe another two or three. You know, Ziyech is already gone. He's signed for Chelsea already, so he's gone. He's basically their their star player. He has been for the past couple of years. You know, going forward in the attack, he's, he's sensational. And I think Chelsea have got themselves a real real star there. Um, and the one's Onana, the goalkeeper. He basically came out yesterday saying that he wants to go, and he says that the club basically had an agreement with him, saying that if the club comes into him this summer, then he's he's gone. Um, he's been linked to you know Chelsea, Barcelona, PSG. And then you've got Donny van der Beek, who scored quite a few goals in the uh, as well. He's getting linked to, a, to moves to Real Madrid, Manchester United. Um, yes, even you know, Everton and the Newcastle are linked. So, yeah, I think the squad, as it is every year, will have a few players picked apart from it. I think the main ones, ZX, the main one, he's already gone. And then you might see van der Beek and O'Nana as well.
3: That was a hell of a squad that, that, um, that had their Champions League run. I, and I remember we did a Champions League preview show and uh, I called that one out um, as, as the team to watch. So I kind of uh, had that cap for, for a couple of months uh, last season um, and I haven't let Phil uh, forget about it um, ever since. Um, Michael, that's very interesting. Um, definitely one to watch. I suppose as leagues begin to fall one by one, you um, there could be increasing pressure on the major leagues in in terms of the Premier League and and to kind of question where they're going, especially if if things drag on into the summer months. Um, But thanks for joining the podcast tonight.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. And uh, stay safe, guys.
3: We're joined by Robbie Dunn, an Irish sports journalist based in Madrid. Thanks for joining, Robbie. Um, I hope you're keeping well over there.
2: Yeah, all good. Yeah, uh, just got news that we might be going out of coming out of lockdown in a couple of days, so I can't really complain.
3: Good stuff. What's life like being in, in Madrid and in Spain the past couple of weeks? Sounds like it was fairly badly hit.
2: Yeah, it was. Yeah, we were, we've been in lockdown. It's, it's kind of funny talking to people back home and that. Um, when we say lockdown, we're, we're literally not allowed to leave the house unless we're going somewhere and have a reason to go somewhere. So, um, and the police have given out something like, I've heard 500,000 fines or 600,000 fines. So, yeah, they'll, they'll nab you if you do leave the house for uh, for no reason. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's proper lockdown here, so it's not been great. But it kind of got normal then as well at the same time. So, it's, mm. it's kind of strange how everything worked out. I
3: know people here are complaining about... Um not been able to run beyond two kilometres so yeah. we definitely yeah. could have it worse
2: yeah my sister's text me and said I'm stressed out I'm going for a cycle I said oh I'd love to be able to <laughs> go for a cycle <laughs> so uh, yeah no we can't do any of that yeah um,
3: so I suppose we we have you on after the news yesterday we heard um, about the sad passing of Michael Robinson who probably to a lot of people would hark back to Irish football uh, in the 80s the pre-Charlton era in which he was One of the casualties, I suppose, in Jack's squad selections when he took over. Um, Others might remember him for his time at Liverpool. Um, I suppose that era, it was well before myself and and Phil's time. Um, And I'd have known him really only as one of the many ex-Irish Liverpool players during that time um, in the mid to late 80s and even early 90s. Um, But after he hung up the boots... Um, He had a brief enough spell at Osasuna. He went on to be what seemed like one of Spain's more forefront um, and respected football commentators. Could you tell us a little bit about his role in Spanish football?
2: Yes, yeah, so as you said, he went to Osasuna, played there for a couple of years and then he was signed on to work at the 1990 World Cup and um, he said he wasn't really comfortable because he didn't speak a whole lot of Spanish but they said, listen, uh, they, I guess the guys who signed him up knew he had a little bit of charisma, knew he had something about him and he just talked to it and kind of made his own little role there and, and, and in every single thing he did, that humour and wit and... and, and um, Authenticity shone through, I guess, and uh, he was just completely loved here. He 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 had everything going for him. He had that kind of a foreigner he, he, because he came over here, embedded himself completely in the culture, was won over by Spain, and just loved the place. And 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 I'm not sure if you've ever been on holidays here or that, but like I suppose it's the same as any country, when you when you kind of come over and make an effort with the language and, and embed yourself and try to learn the customs and learn learn how things are done here you're you're welcomed um, more freely and that's exactly what robinson did and he but he also maintained his kind of kind of a british humor and and uh, and, and things like that so he was true to himself completely but he was also like uh, an honorary spaniard at the same time you know
3: because when i heard the news and i looked him up and you know you see his his career he had two years in asasuna and you're kind of wondering like how would, how would a guy go from 2 years in spanish football to to be one of spain's major pundits so he must have he must have really kind of ca- uh, captured uh, spanish culture in those couple of years
2: yeah, absolutely, as well, and and I, I think there's kind of a strange thing, and you can even see that today. Like, there's a weird kind of a connection between Spaniards and Liverpool. I think, I think um, the, the, that Liverpool team of the eighties and uh, and and the people, I, I guess, who were hiring at that time and and who, who 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 were making decisions were heavily influenced by that Liverpool team. And even now, you see it to this day. Those guys are like forty and and, and well, late thirties, forty, fifty, and 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 Liverpool are, are just loved still. They still talk about liverpool and Klopp now and you'll never walk alone and 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 it's just liverpool is kind of like a mythical team and and, and the fact that robinson uh, michael robinson came from liverpool to um, to to Spanish football and at the time obviously even now I mean we, we look at it and and like Kieran Trippier is considered somewhat of a trailblazer and we're looking at 30 <laughs> years ago like we're looking at 30 years ago a guy coming over and playing and and I know there's been a number of UK based uh, or UK born players that have played in Spain but like there's there's been few who stayed and there have been even fewer who 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 got got the, as involved as Michael Robinson did in the in the in the um, in the culture and uh, yeah, it's just it's just really an interesting story and and, and it's, it's as I was just telling you off air before like it's 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 strange for someone I've only been living here for three three and a half years uh, and I when I first came here like I had I obviously the same as you guys had an idea of who who Michael Robinson was and he played for Ireland Liverpool and uh, came over to Spain but. Like it's one of the first things Spaniards ask you when they hear that you're from Ireland, and oh, what do you what do you think Robinson? Do you, do you watch a lot of Robinson? And I was like, I was like Robinson. I I didn't know who they were talking about, <laughs> and then, and then you kind of realise just how big of a figure he is here, and 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 reading the eulogies yesterday and, and the pieces written about him, it wasn't like. Seventy percent or eighty percent or just a a certain circle of people. It was everyone. It was, and it wasn't just one type of media. It was print, radio, television, digital. Everyone was just in in a a state of shock that he that they lost such a legendary figure. um, uh, at such a young age, as well, and 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 f- and I, I don't think it's uh, an exaggeration to say he, he revolutionised uh, the media here as well. Like, uh, uh, which is kind of uh, important in in the fact that yeah, he was loved and he was funny and he was great crack and stuff like that and great personality. But he also uh, made really really compelling programs and really changed the way that. Spaniards spoke about the game and looked at the game and and um, yeah, he's just just an all-around
0: fascinating figure and he'll be, he'll be sorely missed here in Spain. Um, one of the things that kind of jumped off the page at me, like all the um, all the various tributes that have been written from Simon Hughes and The Athletic to mm. Sid Lowe's and The Guardian and yourself uh, had a lovely piece about, about Michael on, on Hey Liga today, is just how he seemed to just have a really good understanding of people and um, that jumped off the page in how everyone described his work like you said his, his revolutionary work in football broadcasting that he was writing and producing his own shows as well as presenting and being a pundit I mean it's really rare for for even a trained journalist to be doing as much as he was doing as an ex-footballer And um, but there was a couple of lovely lines in, in Sid's piece um, about his kind of view of the world and how he just he, it, was some, it was around that he could make peace with capitalism if if it made space for everyone. And he just seemed to have a great grasp of people and that seemed to feed into a lot of what made him so loved. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's it. And 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 his
2: his his t- talents, as you said, producing, um, writing a lot of the shows. He he was the on-air talent as well as that. He was uh, loved by by the people. He was um, and and it said on the the Spanish football podcast as well was explaining how the whole situation worked and they'd go and they try to get stories for El Dia this ways and he uh, they'd come back and and he'd kind of write it up and figure out what was going on and he knew kind of he had a really good eye for that as well. Like you know. <laughs> And um, I, I think, yeah, uh, I think also that there's that kind of a um you see he he fell in love as well with a little city down in the south of Spain called Cadiz which is which is a really it's it's actually funny in that he he it, the people from Cadiz are known as gaditanos and he was like an honorary gaditano and, and uh, loved loved Cadiz the city and it, it's funny in that the similarities in, in Cadiz and Liverpool it's it's a working class port city obviously as a football club they're nowhere near as successful as um as as Liverpool, but in terms of their fan base, they're very kind of left wings, uh, socialist kind of a, a, a an outlook, and they'd have kind of strong ties with Rio Vallecano here in Madrid and, and things like that. And 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 I think I think uh, Michael Robinson had that had that um, fell in love with that aspect of the, of the of the of the of Cadiz, and I think that that's I think that's an important part of football culture and how how we as fans and we as people like I I, I, like I mean I I don't don't want to speak for every single kind of more left leaning fan in the world or, or more kind of socially aware fan in the world but I think we kind of tend to um, look at football through the uh, through the lens of that socio political kind of a, um, a aspect, you know. And and I think that Michael Robinson maybe and I've absolutely no idea what way his politics were, but he did speak about capitalism and he said that he loved Cadiz because capit- It was the only city that capitalism wasn't the law. I think is what he said. It was a quote yeah. from him. And yeah, I think he just had that kind of personality and he knew exactly what sport could do. He knew what kind of emotions it could uh, it could bring out of people. And he 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 tried to bring those stories to the to the people um without being um yeah without without trying to trick them he loved those stories you know he he, he was doing it because he enjoyed it and i think that that came true in every single piece of work he did from El Dia Des pues through to his commentating and then uh, his informe robinson as well which is another show kind of a, like a reporting show that he did telling stories personable stories
3: i think um kind of following up on the reaction to his, to his past yesterday, um, kind of from an Irish and UK standpoint, it's kind of hard to fathom a character like that because we've become so accustomed to Sky Sports and, you know, big screens and, and, and drawing lines for Offside. And it's just very meticulous and it's very businesslike and there's there's everyone's wearing suits. Whereas Michael was very much of the storyteller, of the player, of the person behind... Uh, the jersey, would that be correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think I mean I'm sure you guys are kind of fairly plugged in there as well. And journalism is in kind of a weird place at the moment, and kind of has been, I suppose, for a while. And and I think like younger journalists, I suppose back then maybe you had more room for room for kind of being yourself, whereas now it's all very everything is kind of um, online, and everything is you're afraid kind of to make one mistake because that one mistake could be the end of like whereas whereas which whereas back then I guess it was a little bit more free and people were allowed to be more themselves and whereas now it's gone very corporate and kind of um uh, given the fact that that journalism is kind of on its knees and jobs aren't that easy to come by it is it is a lot more kind of strict in terms of that but yeah I mean Michael Robinson did tell those stories just, and it's funny from a from a yeah it, it's funny like because. I guess he just I I suppose it's just like a perfect storm him coming over here like he was a former footballer he had immediate credibility in terms of that but he was also so likable and 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 as I said it was it was from every single person that spoke about him so he was he was he had the he had the credentials as far as playing football went he came over here and embedded himself perfectly he kind of and he didn't do this as any kind of a uh 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 he didn't try to uh, forge this career path like that, but he he, he was just a perfect person at the perfect time to arrive here. Like, and it's funny how he would speak about Spain and he would he, like, there were stories where he'd be driving through the countryside in Spain and he'd just be in complete all like almost like childlike wonder. And he'd be saying about the, the open spaces and stuff like that. And I was just thinking before coming on, like, it was kind of like, I, cause I get that given like, I, li- I like living here in Spain, I, and I think it's the it's it's only a foreigner that can that can kind of that can kind of bring that childlike wonder. It's kind of like a maybe maybe like a, an American saying to someone about Ireland, for example, how wonderful it is. And I'm looking at them going like, yeah, it's it's like I do, yeah, I love Ireland, but it's like, is it really that great, you know? And and like <laughs> it, it, it takes a foreigner it takes a foreigner to instill that kind of gratitude in you because when he, an American comes over and explains to you how. Amazing, they think Ireland is. Just for example, you kind of take a step back and say, Do you know what? Like they're right. Ireland actually does have all these things. And I think Michael Robinson came over, and 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 he told he was kind of telling the Spaniards how great it was, and they were looking at it through his eyes, just fresh eyes. And I think that that's why they appreciated him as well because he was just so honest and uh, about. About about what is a fascinating country as well, and and telling interesting stories about and uh, one of the best leagues in the world, and and they live 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 and breed football here obviously, and uh, yeah, he was just uh, the right man at the right time, and just uh, carried on from there.
3: And I suppose it, it was a nice touch as well that uh, his last game was was a let go in Liverpool.
2: Yeah, absolutely yeah he said Diego Simeone is trying to finish me off here he's,
3: <laughs>
2: that that. he's saying like putting me through some some torture here before I, I pass on but uh yeah it's, it's kind of it's kind of uh interesting as well the fact that it was Anfield and it was such a weird game and it was such a weird situation and it's such a weird situation we're in here and um yeah it's just uh, I think um I think yeah football fo- Spanish football has lost uh lost a very important figure and, and and like we were saying it's it's uh, it's really it's, it's really hard to kind of fathom how big he was but uh, but yeah he, he was just he
3: just loved like you know mm. and on, on the point of football I suppose uh, for a minute and we had um, Michael Bell on the podcast earlier talking about the air division um, and their decision mm. to to cancel the lead there. Uh, is there any update, or is there any kind of murmurings on on where La Liga are standing from 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 their league?
2: Yeah, so they've written out a fairly detailed plan as to what is going to happen, or what they they want to happen, uh, going back to training and being tested and and things like that. But uh, as far as um, there's kind of like a standoff at the moment between the players and the like. So so the plan is that they'll go back training individually on the fourth of May, and then they're going to go and do um. They'll do that for a, for a, I think it's a week, and then after that it'll be into groups of eight, and then after that it'll be into groups, full team groups, and then after that I think it's a week. So then after that third week they'll go back into they'll go into isolation for a week, be tested for the coronavirus and things like that, and then, and then they'll go back to football. But this is where they've they're they're rejecting that because, I mean it's uh, for a start there's medical workers here waiting on tests and apparently. La Liga are just going to produce a couple of hundred thousand te- or tens of thousands of tests out of out of nowhere and um, so I think a lot of the, there's a little bit of unease there maybe not even just with the players but a lot of the employees from the clubs are saying too I mean uh, where are all these tests coming from like, like we've, they've got family and friends working in hospitals who are waiting two and three weeks to be tested and all of a sudden they're going to just start testing players and us just because it's football it feels a little bit unfair there's a lot of criticism coming their way in terms of that and then also the players don't agree with being isolated for a week and um, uh, because obviously footballers uh, make a lot of money and they're kind of used to doing what they what they want, and all of a sudden they're being told to stay in the training facilities here in Valdebebas and Real Madrid's uh, training ground and in hotels, uh, and they're just saying no, no, listen, like I mean, pff, um, we don't want to, we don't, like I mean, there's there's some things that we're just not willing to do, and uh, so you've got that aspect, and then you've also got the aspect of this is everything going to plan what happens if there's a cluster or a breakout or or someone gets really sick from it? I mean, what, what happens? So so you're going into the summer here uh, and and June, July is uh, just like, I mean, they say in Spain, there's, there's nine months or what is it? There's three, uh, nine months of winter and three months of hell. Like it's so warm that you won't be able to play. You're not going to be able to play football um, until maybe late at night or early in the morning. So there's scheduling issues and the players are going to be unfit unmotivated, playing beyond their contracts and and all of a sudden uh, they're being expected to go out and play for a league title. I mean, even if you win the league, what does, what's it going to mean? I mean, what, what happens if, for example, Real Madrid win the league with Barcelona... Are missing three players due to unfair injuries and um, and uh, breakout of coronavirus. I mean, what there's going to be an asterisk beside your name anyway, and I just feel like that's kind of the, that's the criticism coming, or not, not even criticism, but everyone's looking at it going, "You've got this plan laid out, which is perfect. That's your prerogative. You have to do that." But at the same time. There's so many ways this could go wrong. There's so many... You're you're, you're rushing it. Um, uh, Like, is it worth it? I mean, Javier Tebas, the president of La Liga, Liga said that they could lose €1 billion if they don't play, um, if La Liga isn't finished. So he's really keen to get it finished. But... At what cost, I mean, is the question now at the moment. I just it's really hard to see what's going to happen here, and um, yeah, sorry for going on a tangent there, but I I just don't really see what uh how this is going to play out, really.
3: I think from everything we've heard, whether it's the Liga or it's France uh, or it's the Premier League, there is no right way to go about this, really, is there? I mean, whether you power on. Um, and risk another outbreak or whether you cancel it There's going to, there is no right yeah. way really to, to do this at the moment
2: Yeah and, and at the end of the day I think the only league where, where it would be unfair not to finish or not to crown a champion is the Premier League because Liverpool were just so far out in front that it was practically impossible for them to be caught but in La Liga you've got you've got real madrid and barcelona who have won it so many times that this one year is not yeah. going to make a difference and but the but the problem is then you've got a whole load of administrative uh, bureaucracy problems with Catafé who had, who were having who was, who were storming up the table right when it finished and they're apparently going to be left out of the champions league if it's caught if it's if it's if, it's, if uh, halt is called to it now um and then you've got relegation so for example real saragossa and and cadiz actually <laughs> Michael Robinson's club were were on the brink of being promoted back up to the prim- Primera for the first time in years what happens to them do they have to go and start again I mean yeah there's going to be fallout from this either way and I just think it's about damage limitation at this mm-hmm. stage what can you do to um, to 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 it to, dam- to limit the, the amount of damage and it, to f- make it as fair as possible but at the end of the day there is going to be damage. There is going to be lawsuits. I would imagine, based on if Katafe don't get into the Champions League because they couldn't finish the season, and because some bureaucrat somewhere just made a decision <laughs> that they weren't that this is how they're going to do it, there's going to probably going to be legal repercussions. And I just, I, I, I'm not entirely sure how this is going to play out, and it's going to be messy for. It, it might mess up football for the next four, five, maybe mm. six or ten years. Like,
3: um, absolutely, it's. Uh... I suppose there's, there's no nothing else for really you to say about it, the whole situation. It's just a complete and utter yeah. shambles at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I suppose from certain people's perspective, football is so far down the picking order at the moment that it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, yeah. but, uh, Robbie Epps, thanks for coming on, uh, painting a great picture of, of who Michael Robinson was uh, and what a huge character he was in Spanish football. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight.
2: No problem, lads, any time.